Uh, Titus chapter one, you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter one. It is in the perfect timing and wisdom of God that he has brought us here on this day that we're starting a new sermon series, going through a new book of the Bible. I wish I was, you know, clever enough to have planned it this way, but no, it's just God's perfect timing to lead us here on this week. And I think it's also God's perfect wisdom because this is the perfect book of the Bible to go through as we are entering into a new chapter of our life together as a congregation. The book of Titus was written by the apostle Paul to a young man named Titus, shocker, uh, who he had discipled, he had invested in, he had mentored. And as a young pastor, he is now writing to Titus to show him this is how the church is supposed to be. He is writing to show him how a church is to be structured, how it is to be led in a healthy way. I've titled this sermon series, The Gospel-Shaped Church, because the big idea of the book of Titus is how the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes the church how it molds us, how it transforms us day by day. And here's why that's significant for us. I think that in the church, we can have a tendency at times to think of the gospel as the door into Christianity, and that's it. The gospel is what gets you saved. And then once you understand the gospel, you move on to bigger and better things. But one of my heroes of the faith, Tim Keller, just went to be with the Lord a few months ago, famously said that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z. It's the whole thing. We don't get past the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning and this whole sermon series, we're going to be talking about how the gospel shapes the church. And this morning, I've entitled the sermon, Guarding the gospel, guarding the gospel from Titus chapter one. And now, even as I titled it that way, and even as I looked at a bulletin this week and saw that on the top of it, I'm like, it's kind of a weird title. And here's why. The gospel is what saves me. The gospel is what guards me eternally, what protects me. So as I thought about it, I was like, you know what, Nate? Saying that we guard the gospel is like saying that my head guards my helmet, right? It maybe seems a little bit backwards. So let me explain what I mean by that. When I say guarding the gospel, I mean that we, through the way that we function as a church, guard the testimony of the gospel. We guard our gospel witness when we do so, when we proclaim the gospel in a healthy way, in a healthy church. So as we're starting this new chapter together, I think it's so vital for us to go to the scriptures, to go to this book of Titus and get an explanation from the Lord himself about what his will is for our church, what his desire is for our church to look like. And here's one of the fun things about this chapter, Titus chapter one. It has in this chapter, the qualifications for a pastor and for an elder. Here's why that's a really fun thing for me to preach. Imagine tomorrow morning, your boss said to you, hey, I need you to get up in front of the whole company and read them your job description. I need you to get up there and explain your job description to them thoroughly so that they can hold you accountable for it. I have the fun privilege of doing just that this morning. It can be a weird job sometimes. But that's the thing. This is why this is important because this is what a church needs. And we invite you at Coastal Church, this is what we should expect from our leaders, these standards. And this is an example for how all of us are to live. So let me give you the main point of my sermon up front this morning. 
We guard the gospel in our church through multiplying healthy leaders that teach the truth and call out error. So with all of this in mind, guys, let's read this passage of scripture together. Titus chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is true we thank you, Lord, that you use it to change us and to mold us to be like Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here. Lord, I'm humbled to think this morning about, Lord, all of the countless sacrifices that were made so that we could be here worshiping this morning. Lord, we're so thankful for this opportunity. And we ask now that as we study your word together, that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and minds to receive what you would have to teach us today, that this church might truly be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's start with just a little bit of context about the book of Titus. Now, Titus was one of the last letters written by the Apostle Paul toward the end of his life. So together with First and Second Timothy, Titus and those other two letters make up what's called the pastoral epistles. That means that there are these three letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to young pastors to instruct them how they are to order the churches that they lead. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, and he left Titus in Crete. They are his two kind of right-hand men, his lieutenants, if you will. He left them in important strategic areas to make sure that they had a gospel outpost. He left him in Crete, which is a large island south of Greece in the Mediterranean, a very popular port city where ships would stop to be weighed as they're traveling and trading. So it would have been a very strategic location to reach with the gospel. Crete was pretty big, 3,000 square miles with several cities. Reading between the lines of the book of Titus, it seems pretty obvious that the churches there were young, they were small, they were immature, and they were in need of structure and in need of leadership. That's why Titus was there. And so we're going to see now in Titus chapter 1, three ways that Paul is telling Titus to guard the testimony of the gospel. Three ways. If you're taking notes, this is your first one you can write down. First of all, we guard the gospel when we multiply church leadership. When we multiply church leadership. That word multiply has become an essential part of Coastal's vocabulary and DNA. A lot of you guys know for a long time, our strategy here was connect, grow, serve. But we feel so strongly about this last one that we added a fourth word. It is now connect, grow, serve, and multiply. We believe so strongly in the importance of multiply. And I think we see some clear examples of that in this text that I'd like to unpack now. The first example of multiply that we have is from Paul to Titus. From Paul to Titus. One-on-one, life-on-life discipleship. We see this evident in this introduction to the letters. Let's unpack this a little bit. Paul's going to start by telling us about his ministry before he tells us about his relationship to Titus. So real briefly, let's talk about Paul's ministry. 
He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, that speaks both to his humility and his authority. His humility, I'm a servant of God, I belong to him. But also his authority, I'm an apostle. That means I am an authorized representative of Jesus Christ. Now he's gonna tell us the purpose of his ministry. He says, he is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the reason he is an apostle, he says, is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That is, in order to bring the faith to faith those whom God has chosen. And this faith, he says, accords with godliness. It will overflow in godliness and righteousness in their lives. That's the purpose of his ministry, the faith of God's elect. But next, the content of his ministry, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. That's what he is preaching, the hope of eternal life. What is the hope of eternal life? It's the gospel. And now I've already said that word gospel about a dozen times in the sermon already, but I'd like to go ahead and define it for you now. What do we mean when we say the word gospel here at Coastal Church? Well, to make it easy to remember, we've condensed it into three core facts. If you know it, you can say it with me. All right, this is pop quiz time. Some of you guys, you can say it with me. Say it out loud. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. I think we can do a little bit better than that. I mean, I know it's kind of harder to hear. I know the AC is a little bit loud, but let's try it again. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. You guys are awesome. That's the gospel that Jesus Christ is the God-man, God and man in one person, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, bearing the penalty for sin that you and I deserve to pay. And then on the third day, he bodily came back to life again so that when we turn from our sins and we believe the gospel and we receive Christ into our life, we have the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. And that was what Paul's ministry was all about, proclaiming the hope of eternal life. But what he's about to do in the rest of this verse is very interesting to me. He is about to ground the gospel in the character of God. How do we know that the gospel is true? And how do we know that it's reliable? Because of the character of God. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies. First of all, the gospel is grounded in the honesty of God. In the honesty of God. The God who never lies has promised to save those who come to Christ. You can believe that promise because God never lies. In fact, a little bit later, we're going to get to this in a little bit. In this text, Paul is going to say, Cretans are always liars. And I'm cynical, so I love that. I think it's hilarious, actually. Like he, Paul, you know, seeker-sensitive Paul is sitting there like, hey, you guys are all liars. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, so he emphasizes right at the start of this letter, God never lies. This is the honest God who never lies. And because of that, we can take his word at face value. But he also grounds the gospel in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God who never lies, promised before the ages began. Literally in the Greek, before time eternal. So if we could even speak this way, if it even makes sense, God promised the gospel before time. That statement doesn't even make sense because the word before is a time-based word, right? So before there was such a thing as before, are you confused yet? 
in the eternal counsel of God before time even existed. God promised this hope of eternal life to create and to redeem the world through Christ. So that's the content of the ministry is the gospel. But this gospel that was promised in eternity was manifested in the preaching that was entrusted to Paul, he says. This is the method of his ministry, preaching, proclaiming that gospel. So after this incredible introduction, Paul now says that he writes in verse four to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Let's talk a little bit about Titus. We don't know a ton about him, but we know that him and Paul had a close relationship. So 2 Corinthians was written about mid-50s AD, Titus mid-60s AD, about 10 years later. Okay, you tracking with me? 2 Corinthians, Titus is mentioned by name nine times. So he was one of Paul's most important guys, and he left him in Corinth, which is one of Paul's most difficult churches. So Paul had a lengthy relationship with Titus where he had discipled him, and he had a deep level of trust in him. Now he calls him my true child in a common faith. He is writing to pass the baton now to the next generation. So let me ask you this. And this especially goes for those of you who have been Christians for a long time. You're spiritually mature. You've been walking with the Lord. Who is your true child in a common faith? Who is your Titus? Who are you passing the baton on to? This is what it means to multiply that we are making disciples that will then go out and make disciples, who will then go out and make disciples. And do we get the point yet? That's what it means to multiply. And this takes all of us, takes all of us to be intentional, to raise up the next generation of leaders. So multiply happens from Paul to Titus, but next it happens from Titus to the elders. From Titus to the elders, look at verse six, verse five, sorry. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul invests in Titus, then he gives him a mission. He says, go to Crete and set, uh, put what remained into order. Real quick bit of nerdiness for you. This Greek word for put into order, it means to take something that is crooked and make it straight. It's the word from which we get the later English word ortho. So think orthopedics, think orthodontist. The orthodontist was the bane of my existence as a teenager. I don't know about anybody else suffer through braces at some point in your life. Man, it's the worst. You get these things and you remember the morning after when you wake up after you've had your braces tightened the day before. Anybody else remember that feeling? It's the worst. You know, you're just eating jello all day because you try to chew and you're like, Ugh. But listen, it's taking what is crooked and making it straight. That's the point, orthodontist. He's telling Titus, go to Crete, this culture that is crooked and messed up, and through the doctrine that you're preaching, take what is crooked and make it straight. And how do you do that, Titus? What is the strategy? The strategy is multiply. The strategy is multiply. Appoint elders in every town, Paul says. Same thing that Paul did. Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I want you to notice something. This is significant. In both of these verses, there is an S on the end of the word elder. He does not say appoint an elder in every church. He says appoint elders, plural, in every church. Why do I emphasize that? 
Because at Coastal, we believe that the most biblical and effective form of church government is for a church to be led by a plurality of elders. That means more than one biblically qualified, spiritually mature men that are leading the congregation in this role as elder or pastor or overseer. I believe this because shepherding a flock of believers is too big of a burden for one man to carry. You know, if I wasn't already biblically convinced of this, and I am, the last year and a half of being a lead pastor has made me practically convinced of this because I have the privilege of serving with some incredible men like Brian Briggs and Dan Sexton and John Lindstrom who are invaluable to this ministry here. And it is too big of a burden for me to carry alone. But here's the deal. Paul is telling Titus that he is responsible to train and to appoint these elders. Same thing Paul told Timothy for 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. A big part of what it means to multiply at Coastal is what we call leadership development. Leadership development. It's this process that we have come up with in order to train the next generation of leaders. And I am very excited about the fact that just in our congregation in Coastal Gloucester, we have trained up a lead pastor, two elders, and 11 deacons. And spoiler alert, in the next couple of months, there's a lot more coming. We believe so strongly in the importance of raising up more and more godly leaders for the church. This is what we're called to do. And here's another reason why. Is it okay? I get it's our first Sunday in this building, but is it okay if I start dreaming for the future now? Well, I have the microphone, so I can, you know, because I'd like to. Listen, why is it important for us to continue raising up leaders? Because what if God positions us to plant or adopt a campus farther up north in Gloucester? Matthews, Middlesex, Guinea, We'll have church out on the boat, Bubba. Listen, why are we here? We are here because we believe that God has given us this mission to reach every corner of this area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we want people to have the hope of eternal life that we have. And if we have an opportunity to plant or adopt a campus, you know what the first thing that campus is gonna need is? Elders, deacons, small group leaders, ministry leaders, people who are willing to go and take the gospel to another area. That's why we believe in this so strongly. So the first way that we guard the testimony of the gospel is by multiplying church leadership. But here's the deal. It's not just any church leaders. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. No leaders is better than bad leaders. No leaders is better than bad leaders. And what Paul is going to tell Titus, he's now going to tell him what kinds of leaders he needs to raise up. He's going to talk about how we guard the gospel through healthy church leadership. We guard the gospel through healthy church leadership. Look with me at verses six through nine here. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may give instruction and in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those 
who contradict it. There you go. There's my job description if you ever wanted it. Titus 1 verses 6 through 9 and 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7 are kind of a parallel there. I want to give you a few quick notes on this passage before we kind of go through it. Now, first of all, this is just sort of a housekeeping thing. Uh, the Bible uses the words pastor, elder, overseer, so on and so forth interchangeably. So we can make distinctions for functional purposes, but in the Bible, they're actually referring to the same office. And I want to make sure I emphasize this. I hope you won't tune out and think, well, this is for Pastor Nate and for other pastors and elders. This has nothing to do with me. There is not one thing in that list that I just read that every Christian is not called to do. Not one thing. The difference is that pastors and elders are merely called to be an example for the rest of the flock. So it's not as if you can say, well, I'm not a pastor, so I get to be violent. Not a pastor, so I get to be a drunk. I'm not a pastor, so I don't have to be hospitable or whatever else. No, we're all called to do all of this. Last thing, and I really was amused as I thought about this. Um, if you were to ask the average person, let's say you did a survey and you're asking random people, hey, what is your ideal pastor? And you have to tell them other than Pastor Nate, of course. I'm just kidding, please, just kidding. What kinds of answers would you get? You'd probably get things like, you know, a dynamic communicator, someone who's a natural leader, someone who's a visionary, maybe someone who is, you know, relatable and personable and warm and kind and all of these things, or maybe it's, I don't know, whatever else, like Mr. Rogers or something. I don't know. You, you will get all of these different descriptions and all of that's great, but none of that makes the list, right? When we look at what Paul is saying is required to be a leader in God's church, he says you need to be a godly, spiritually mature Christian who's able to teach others the Bible. That's it. I mean, yeah, that's it. As if it was that easy. But what D.A. Carson said is true. He said, what's remarkable about this is how unremarkable it is. It is spiritually mature, godly men. And here's the point I'm trying to make here. The word of God elevates godliness over giftedness. Godliness over giftedness. And far too often, churches get into trouble when we flip those when we elevate giftedness over godliness, when we platform based on talent rather than on maturity. And that's why what we have to emphasize, nothing wrong with talent, we love talent, but what is primary is character, godliness, spiritual maturity. That's what Paul's after here. So we gotta move real quickly here. Let's talk about this list. Fundamentally, the requirement here is that a leader be above reproach be above reproach. That phrase is used twice in this list, including at the very beginning, and it's used in the very beginning of the list in 1 Timothy 3. I like to think of this as the umbrella that everything else falls under. So what he's doing is he's saying, hey, be above reproach, and then this list is going to show you how you are above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? It means one who cannot be credibly accused of wrongdoing one who cannot be credibly accused of wrongdoing. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. First of all, it does not mean perfection. If it did, I'll turn in my resignation after the sermon, right? It clearly does not mean perfection because we're all sinners. It doesn't mean a spotless past because again, there would be the resignation again. And also look at Paul. 
He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. Doesn't mean that you have a spotless past. What does it mean? It means that you have demonstrated a consistent track record of faithfulness in the home and in the church and in your ministry to other people such that other people could look at your life and say, this is a godly, mature person. It means not only that there's no obvious sin in your life, but that no one could credibly bring a charge against you that would jeopardize the testimony of the church. One of the men who mentored me, Pastor Joey, the pastor at Deer Park Fellowship, has used an illustration before that I think is helpful here. To be above reproach means to have no handles. So think about like a bag that has a handle on it. The handle allows you to quickly and easily grab it and pick it up and move it away. He's saying being above reproach means that there's no handles in your life. There's nothing that anyone could grab onto and point to. The primary responsibility for a church leader is to be above reproach. I've heard it said before that it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy it. And how many examples have we seen of that, guys? It's tragic. You know, this week I was unpacking all of the books in my office over there and take, took a little longer than I'd care to admit. Uh, but as I'm unpacking books, I saw one and I won't name the author. I don't think that'd be helpful, but, but I saw an author and it made me sad when I picked up this book because this is a person who had decades of fruitful and faithful ministry. And then because of a few minutes of sin, now I was like even wondering if I should even put the book on my shelf because his name has been destroyed. Guys, we must be above reproach. That is the fundamental calling for a leader. And I wanna show you three different categories in which we are to be above reproach. The first is be above reproach in your home. Above reproach in your home. Verse six, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, husband of one wife. In Greek, that literally means a one woman man. What he's speaking to here is faithfulness within marriage. Now, it's not saying you have to be married because Paul himself was not married. What he's saying is, if you are married, be faithful to your spouse. If you're single, pursue sexual purity. That's what's involved here in this very first qualification. The first thing that he points to for a person that's above reproach is someone who is faithful in their marriage and someone who is sexually pure. But then he moves on to children. He says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I wanted to compare this uh, with the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. I really like this translation. And I think I like the way that the CSB puts this a little bit better. So it says in the second half of the verse, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. What's the difference? On the one hand, he's speaking about children that are believers, that is Christians. On the other hand, he's speaking of children that are faithful, meaning they're loyal, they're obedient, they're submissive, but not necessarily having to be Christians. Here's why I prefer the translation faithful. First of all, a person, a parent rather, cannot control whether or not his children will become Christians. Now, I pray every single day. I plead with the Lord every day that one day he will save Hannah and Leah, that one day he will save my children, but I cannot control that. That is between them and the Lord. They have to come to a place where they surrender their life to Christ. I cannot control that. But the rest of the context of this verse, to me, points more in the direction of faithful. And here's why. Not accused of wildness or rebellion. The point is being above reproach in your parenting. 
that no one can point at your home and say, your house is out of order. Your house is out of control. A person cannot control whether his children are Christians, but he can control whether they are wild or rebellious. And what the calling is, is to make sure that there's nothing in your home that people can point to that would be disqualifying. As he says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? What Paul is showing us here that we have to get is that character starts in the home. Guys, it starts in the home. That's why Paul starts here. Because if we're failing in this area, it doesn't matter if we're successful anywhere else. If we're failing at home, it doesn't matter how we're doing at work or how we're doing at church. Faithfulness to the Lord starts with those who are closest to us living in the home with us. So regardless of your calling in this life, whether it's a pastor or not, focus on your home, prioritize your home. But the next way that we must be above reproach is in our conduct, in our conduct. What Paul does in verses seven through eight is rattle off this long list of character qualities that a person must have in order to be um, a pastor or an elder. The first one is stewardship. It's stewardship. He said, as God's stewards. A steward is somebody who takes care of something on behalf of somebody else. It's not mine. It belongs to them, but I'm taking care of it for them. Think about it as, you know, if you've ever had a company car or truck, it's not yours. It's the company's. You're driving it on their behalf and you're responsible to care for it as if it belongs to someone else. We must remember that a church does not belong to a pastor does not belong to a group of elders. It belongs to God. You know, earlier this week, we're walking out of this building and somebody asked me a question about, you know, where something should go. And I said, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm typically not very good with that kind of thing. And they said, well, it's your church. I just smiled and said, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's God's church. God has blessed me with the position of stewarding, but it's God's church. He gives us a list of negatives he says that this person must not be arrogant. They can't have an ego or a big head. Can't be quick-tempered. Can't fly off the handle at every slight provocation. They can't be a drunk, he says. Doesn't mean that they can never have a drink. I don't think the Bible teaches that it's a sin to ever have a sip of alcohol, but I do believe the Bible is very clear that alcohol abuse of any form is sinful. Uh, drinking in excess to drunkenness or alcoholism, that's sinful and disqualifying. He says, not violent, not greedy for gain, not selfishly leveraging their position for financial gain or other forms of gain. But then he gives the positive side. You need to be hospitable. You need to be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, so on and so forth. The point of all of this is to say that this has to be a person who is pursuing Christ, pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness. Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor, author of a famous book called The Reformed Pastor. And he said in that book, don't unsay with your life what you say with your tongue. Don't unsay with your life what you say with your tongue. That's the purpose of all of these qualifications. So I hope that as you read that list, you read it like I do and go, yikes. Because I read that list and immediately I start thinking of all the ways that I fall short and how badly I need God's grace. 
And so I'd invite you to use this list as an opportunity to read it and go, Lord, where are the areas where you're telling me I need to grow and I need to become more like Jesus? But the last area that we must be above reproach is in our teaching. He says, be above reproach in your teaching. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, to the word of God, to the Bible. And then he gives this two-sided ministry. The first is to give instruction in sound doctrine. That word sound literally means healthy. Doctrine that is true, that brings about health as it is taught. That is why at Coastal, when we preach, when we teach, we don't give you our opinions. We give you the word of God. We go to the word and say, this is what it means. This is how it applies to our lives because it's the word that brings health. Let me give you another reason why I like to do that. Guys, I'm 29. I'll be 30 next month, so I'm getting old. I'm 29. It would be pretty arrogant of me to get up here every week and tell you how to live your life. A lot of y'all could be my parents or grandparents. Don't worry, I won't name names. How arrogant would it be for me to think I have it all figured out and I can get up here every week and tell you how to live your life? What do I know? All I have to offer you is this book. All I have for you is the word of God. We hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And when we believe this word, it brings about health. But there's another side of the coin. He tells Titus that he must rebuke those who contradict it. It's the negative counterpart. Rebuke those who contradict it. Must be able to discern truth from error so that they can call out the error for what it is. John Calvin said, the pastor must have two voices, one to call in the sheep and one to drive away the wolves. That's what Titus is talking about here. So be above reproach in your teaching. So we've seen that we guard the gospel through multiplying church leadership, through having healthy church leadership, and he's about to show us the last way that we guard the gospel, through faithful church protection. Through faithful church protection. Let's read the rest of chapter one. Start in verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus, you have to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, and this is what that looks like in these verses. Faithful church protection. Here's the three things that he tells us about these false teachers. First of all, they have corrupt character. Corrupt character. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Remember all those qualifications he just gives of a pastor? This is the opposite. They have corrupt character. Next, they're teaching a corrupt gospel. 
He uses phrases like the circumcision party, Jewish myths. What's going on here? Well, Crete had a large Jewish population in the first century. Many of you might be familiar with the book of Galatians and this idea of what's called the Judaizers. There were groups in the early church who were teaching that in order to be saved, you had to keep the law of Moses, including being circumcised. And Paul came out hard against this, saying that is a denial of the gospel. The gospel is not that we're saved by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus did for us, not by works, but by faith. So they're teaching a corrupt gospel. And they're doing this because they are just like the corrupt culture around them. Corrupt culture. Back to verse 12, my, my favorite verse in this passage that I just, I'm, I'm immature uh, and cynical, so I just find it hilarious. Uh, that Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He's quoting from one of them who said that about them. And one of the fun things as I researched this is that Crete actually had a reputation for dishonesty. Sometimes a culture can have a sin that becomes such a part of the DNA of that culture that they begin to have a reputation for it. That's what happened in Crete with dishonesty. Let me give you a few examples of this. They claimed that they had the tomb of Zeus on their island. If you believe that, I got a bridge to sell you. They actually had a word named after them. To Cretanize in Greek meant to lie. Now, you know it's bad when you get a word named after you. Anybody ever be like, oh, you just pulled a Nate or whatever your name is. You know it's bad when you get a word named after you. That's what happened to them. They had this reputation for dishonesty. Now, connecting that back to the beginning of the passage, no wonder right out of the gate, the first thing Paul says about God is that God never lies. In the midst of this culture filled with liars, you can trust the honest God. So in light of this corrupt character, corrupt gospel and corrupt culture, what should Titus do about it? Well, look at verse 13. Paul says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He must be able to rebuke those who contradict false teaching, as we already saw in verse 9. But I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice how countercultural that would be for us today. Guys, I think that we live in a culture that has made such an idol out of feelings that any kind of rebuke, any kind of sharp rebuke would automatically, regardless of the circumstances or whatever, be viewed as unloving. Vodi Bakum once said, uh, the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice, and we don't believe in the other 10. So there's no place we believe for a sharp rebuke. And now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying go out and be mean to people or go be jerks for Jesus. That ain't what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, that there is a place and a time for a sharp rebuke, according to the Apostle Paul, done out of love. There is a time for direct, forceful speech that is confrontational when it comes to the truth. And here's why, because sound doctrine makes a church healthy. Corrupt, false teaching makes a church sick and diseased. And sometimes it is out of love that a sharp rebuke is necessary. We protect the church by rebuking false teaching. And while the elders and pastors have a particular responsibility here, all of us have a responsibility to be able to discern truth from error and to be able to confront false teaching, even with a sharp rebuke if necessary, for the purpose of guarding the gospel. 
Well, this time I'd like to invite the worship team back. I'd like to invite the prayer team forward. And if you came today with a prayer need or a burden on your heart, uh, there will be people here during the last song or after the sermon who would love to talk and pray with you. But as they're coming forward, I'd like to leave you with one final thought. And this is really important. Here's the thought. Why are we here? Why are we sitting in this building right now? I mean, the easy answer is because last week I told you we're not having church over there anymore. We're going to meet here. That's one reason why we're here. I get it. But why? Guys, so many people have donated generously, giving of their financial resources so that we could be sitting here today. So many volunteers have given up so much time planting trees, painting walls, building the stage that I am standing on right now, installing systems, so many volunteers have put in countless hours so that we could be sitting here right now. But why? Why have we sacrificed so much time, talent, and treasure to be here? Is it because we are a country club that needed a nicer place for our members? Is it because we just felt like a change of scenery? Is it because it felt like a fun thing for us to do? You already know the answer to that, don't you? Of course not. Why are we here? We are here because Jesus is worthy. We are here because Jesus Christ is worthy. We are here because Jesus has given us a mission to reach this world with the hope of eternal life. We are here because we want to reach every corner of Gloucester County with the gospel. And because Jesus is worthy, we are his ambassadors here on a mission for him. And I was reading this week about in 1732, there was a group called the Moravian Brethren, and there were two brothers who wanted to go and reach this tribe in the Dutch West Indies with the gospel. But this tribe was enslaved, and the only way they could get to these slaves to preach Christ to them was if they were slaves. So these two men sold themselves into slavery to go and bring the gospel to this tribe. And as they're boarding the ship and as they're leaving their home, knowing they'll probably never see their family again, they call back out to the shore, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. In other words, we are going, we are giving even our own lives because Jesus is worthy because Jesus deserves to be worshiped and we cannot sleep at night because there are people that are not bowing the knee to King Jesus. Guys, why are we here? We are here because we want the lamb who was slain to receive the reward of his suffering in Gloucester County. We are here because there are people who live in this county that Jesus bled for, suffered for, and was nailed to a cross for that do not know him. We are here because there are people in this county that are in bondage to the lies of this world, to the lies of the evil one. They are enslaved to sin. And we have the hope of eternal life. We are here because Jesus is worthy. And he is worthy of being worshiped. And we are here as his ambassadors to call people, to plead with people, to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we're here because we believe that Jesus is worthy of being worshiped. Is that something that you wanna be a part of? Yeah. That's why we're here.
That's why we're here. So I hope and I pray that as we go forward together, making authentic followers of Jesus Christ, that the lamb who was slain would receive the reward of his suffering here in Gloucester in some small part through us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we love you. You are worthy. Lord, you alone are worthy of everything we are and everything that we have. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified through us. Lord, this building that has been built is incredible. It is a gospel outpost to be used for your glory. We pray that you would do many mighty things in this place through us. And that from here, you would use us to reach this community with the life-changing good news that Jesus saves. Lord, help us to be faithful, to guard the testimony of the gospel, to multiply healthy leaders, that you would use us to, to confront, to rebuke the error that leads to sickness and sin. And Lord, you would use us to bring about spiritual health through the sound teaching of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would use us. We pray that you would bless our church as we go forward. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.